This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, July 17th. Episode 102 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. We are a weekly baseball podcast coming to you from Champaign, Illinois. Uh, we don't talk about this much, or we don't explicitly mention it. I, Peter, am a Cubs fan, and Paul is a White Sox fan. It's true. And that's very important for this week's episode. Yes. Probably the like greatest news story for our podcast. The most relevant. Yeah. I On Twitter, I said it was it was only rivaled by the... Uh, week last summer when the Cubs traded for Chapman and Sale cut up jerseys. Mm. But this is like one story that That's true. impacts us both. That's true. Of course, we're talking about the Jose Quintana uh, trade to the Cubs that broke, shocked the baseball world this past week. We're definitely going to uh, discuss that trade uh, later in the podcast, um, but we have lots to cover besides that. Uh, this This episode is going to focus a lot on the second half of the season. So later on in the podcast, we um, have a guest, Rob Maines. One of our favorite guests. Yes, recurring guest, Rob Maines of Baseball Prospectus. He came on to discuss an article that he wrote about statistical trends we see in baseball in the second half. He also addressed whether he's more of a first half or second half writer. <laughs> There's a little tease for that. Stick around until the end. Yeah, for you uh, baseball writer fantasy players, it's a good listen. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, to the to the fantasy owners of Ken Rosenthal, mm. I apologize. Yeah, who has a job in baseball writing anymore? <laughs> I think everyone should just go to Facebook. <laughs> They're hiring. And we also are going to discuss the uh, best second-half offense and best second-half pitching staff of all time. And the two teams might surprise you mm-hmm. because they weren't all that good right? in terms of record. Yeah, neither team made the playoffs. But two interesting uh, cases. One was... Uh, the offense was from 1999, and the pitching staff was from 2012. Yep. Uh, so that's in deep dive, and then, of course, we'll break down the All-Star game, home run derby, and uh, the big Jose Quintana trade. All right, before we get to all of that, time for our Nelly updates. I'm not sure I've talked about this on the podcast. We're to the point where I could be reusing Nelly material, so hmm. you'll have to uh, say if you've heard this before, Paul. Uh, Nelly has played in the celebrity softball game twice, at yeah. least at least twice. I think that's news. I haven't heard that before. I expected more YouTube videos of it. The only two that I could find that he definitely played in were 2009, which was in St. Louis, and 2014, which was in uh, Minneapolis. Both games he hit a home run. Um, so I'm did, sure did I'm you... sure he's played in more, but those are the only two uh, I could find of video footage. Right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. Did his stance resemble any current major leaguers? Uh, no, pretty normal stance. Did you watch the softball game this year? I watched some of it. the The lineups were pretty weak. You know, they they had a ton of former baseball players that were, you know, famous like Ricky Henderson, uh, Tim Raines, uh, Pudge, 
Uh, Don't um, Mike and Mike from ESPN normally play in that? They have before. They they weren't in it this year. So, and they're just a lot of a lot of B list actors. There weren't a lot of famous hmm. people. Uh, like a, a a random guy from The Walking Dead, which I don't watch. Yeah, Benito Santiago, Levon Hernandez. Anyway, that's Nelly. He played in the Celebrity Softball game a couple times. Thanks to him for our intro song. Moving on to uh, just general baseball banter. Wanted to revisit our home run derby and all star game uh, prop bets from last episode as a way to kind of discuss the home run derby and all star game. Uh, Paula, just based on our texting conversations, it doesn't seem like you watched either event. <laughs> You're saying uh, like we didn't text each other about either game, that's why? Well, or? yeah. Um, well, I texted you and you had said that you were like busy during the, the game, the home run derby. Yes, I watched uh, the last five innings of the all-star game. Okay. And uh, I was hanging out with some friends Monday night and the home run derby was on in the background. Okay. Yeah, pretty good home run derby. Yes. Pretty average all-star game, I would say. Yeah, it was boring. Yeah. All right, so we did a home run derby draft, and I won. Did you know that, Paul? Uh, I had not done the math, no. So I had Bellinger, Sano, Sanchez, Blackman. That equaled 100 homers. You had Judge, Stanton, Mustakas, and Bohr. It was 95 homers. But I had the I had the winner, so. I knew you were going to protest. <laughs> So I win 100 to 95, pretty close contest. Um, but yeah, Judge is the winner. And you, he, um, he hit 47 of your 95. You follow the uh, ratings pretty closely. It seemed like the home run derby ratings were up. Yeah. So one of our bets was which will have a better TV ratings or which one will have more viewers: the Oscar game or the home run derby. Uh, traditionally, the Oscar game has been, you know, at least double the the home run derby. This year, it was very close. The All-Star Game still won. It had 9.3 million viewers compared to the Home Run Derby's 8.2. Hmm. So the gap is closing. And uh All-Star Game was up just barely from last year, which was an all-time low. And the Home Run Derby is up, uh, I think, to the highest level since like 2009, maybe, 2008. Do you recall what the World Series ratings were? Like, would an All-Star Game be significantly less? Uh... Well, G- game 7 was 40 million. Okay, so it'd be like a fourth of the people who watched. But, I mean, Game 7 of the Cubs-Indians is like a very unique. Sure. Yeah, so I think like 15 million would be a good kind of average for the uh, a normal World hmm. Series. And Sunday Night Baseball would probably be a little bit less than. Oh, it's like 1 million. All right, uh, other prop bets. Bellinger or Judge, obviously. Judge hit more homers, 47 to Bellinger's 27. Uh more home runs hit, uh, the eight participants in the home run derby or the Giants in the first half. That was not close. Uh, the Giants had 75 first half homers. <laughs> there was a, 195 homers hit in the uh, home run derby. So I don't think that was a fair bet. You took the Giants, the Giants right? No. We both, we, took, we, the, okay. we both took the over. Uh, will Marlins man be within camera shot for the All-Star game? I didn't see him. Did he make it? Yes. He was nice. there. I, I said yes, you said no, right? Oh, I think we both said yes. Okay. And then the last one, uh, will Rob Manford be wearing a tie? I never saw him during the game, and I tried to uh, find that on Google, and I couldn't find him. He did give an interview right before the game, and he was wearing a tie. Nice. Uh, his interviews are always very interesting. Mm-hmm. He, he says stuff. Right. Yeah, I think he's... Uh, 
I guess I was going to say he's the, the best commissioner at like talking to the public, but Silver's pretty good too, I guess. Silver's weird. Yeah. Uh, so that was the Home Run Derby All-Star Game. Last thing to mention there, are you aware that Derek Gould stole information from us? Uh, I was not aware. What information? At 10.39 p.m. on July 11th, uh, a foot in the box tweeted, 88 All-Star Games with two ties. The AL and NL each have 43 wins, and they each have scored 361 runs. Yeah, pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. Interesting factoid. One minute later at 10.40 p.m. on July 11th, Derek Gould, after 88 All-Star Games, the record is now 43-43 and 43 with two ties. The National League, 361 runs. American, American League, 361 runs. Hashtag baseball, hashtag All-Star Game, hashtag MLB. Hmm. This is coming uh, after last year. Was it last year that you... Um, Jonah Carey stole. Yeah, yeah, you accused Jonah Carey of stealing a blog post, I believe. he did. Well, I tweeted the blog post to him and said, hey, you might find this interesting. I think the the All-Star Game numbers are um, not unique enough. Mm. You know how many retweets Derek Gould got? Mm, 150. 1,500. How many did you get? Two. Are you getting nuts? One was from me. <laughs> Who was the other one? A Twitter follower. Nice. Perhaps a podcast listener. Uh, but we're bearing the lead. The American League won again. It doesn't matter now. Uh, it matters to me. Uh, but yeah, I thought the the last maybe three innings were, were entertaining. The MLB All-Star Game is like the anti-NBA All-Star Game where you have, you know, 300 points scored and no one plays any defense. This year it was two to one and hardly any runners got to second and third base. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a different brand of the game. Probably the two most memorable plays you know, in five years, you probably won't remember anything from this game, but the two that you might remember for me, Harper's catch in right field and then uh, Cano's home run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cano's homer was pretty cool. All right. Since we're at the end of the first half, I thought it would be a good time to revisit uh, our random over-unders from before the season. Oh, boy. So we did 10 of them. We'll just uh, discuss them quickly now. So I think you did five from the American League and I did five from the National League, right? Uh, if you say so. <laughs> yes. All right, so the first one, uh, over under 30 home runs for Gary Sanchez. Uh, Sanchez hit his 14th home run on Friday night, hmm. a big one against the Red Sox. Uh, so we both took the under, and it will probably be under, but it could be close because I think he was hurt earlier this year, Yeah. and uh, he's been coming on strong lately. He's been just completely overshadowed by uh, Judge, but he's having a decent season. Yeah, he had a good performance in the home run derby, too. All right, uh, next one. 23.5 wins for the Reds' first five starters, and that was Brandon Finnegan, Junior Garrett, Rookie Davis, Scott Feldman, and uh, Bronson Arroyo. Clearly a terrible uh, starting five to open Bronson's the Bronson's no longer with us, right? I, he died? No, no, he retired, I thought. I don't I'll, I'll fact check that. Okay. Uh, so right now they have 15 wins. Somehow Scott Feldman has won seven games, and he's really carrying them. Next one, uh, 4.5 NL batters with a on-base percentage of over 400. There was four NL batters that had that last year, and uh, right now at the All-Star break, the NL has six hitters with above 400 on-base. Paul, can you name those six? Hmm, I'll give it a go. Paul Goldschmidt. Yep. 
Chris Bryant? Uh, no. Uh, Rizzo's not there. Uh, Bellinger's not over 400. It's like 330. Hmm. You are terrible. Turner? Terrible at baseball guessing games. No, Bryce Harper, Paul Goldschmidt, Joey Votto, Anthony Rendon, Buster Posey, Michael Conforto. Hmm. Yes, I should have gotten most of those. Uh, fact check on the Royo thing. After a start in the middle of June, he contemplated retirement. Um, but he did not retire. That's correct. Uh, next one, 2.5 months of Jose Quintana. And this is what got me thinking about our over-under list here. Uh, it's been 3.5 months. so We both took the under? You took the under. I took the over. Oh, nice. Uh, the next one was a weird one by Paul. More confidence. <laughs> Anthony Benatendi, Rookie of the Year, or Indians winning the AL Central? <laughs> You'd have to say uh, Indians winning the Central, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. Judge has the Rookie of the Year locked up. Yeah. Uh, the Cubs, four batters with 25 or more home runs. We both took the over, and it looks like it's definitely going to be either a push or under. Uh, Rizzo and Bryant will definitely get to 25, but Schwarber only has 14, Hap has 13, and Contreras has 12. Yeah, I don't think either of us would have said Hap. Next one, 34.5 MLB hitters with 30 or more homers. Uh, there was only 11 in 2014, and then 20 in 2015, and 32 last year. And we both took the over here. It'll be close. Uh, right now, 24 hitters have 20 home runs, and there are 56 with at least 16. I think 16 kind of puts you in in the path to perhaps get to 35. Mm-hmm. And as we'll talk about with Rob Maines at the end of the podcast, more home runs are hit in the second half. So maybe some of those... Guys in the, the Gary Sanchez range could could get there. Yep. Uh, better OPS, Jorge Soler or Byron Buxton? Ooh. We both took Buxton, and he wins kind of by default at this point. <laughs> He's got an OPS of 604 compared to Soler's 520. Gosh. Soler has been a negative 1.4 war player this year. Hmm. I'd say the Cubs won that trade. Uh, Yankees over under 81 wins. You took the under, I took the over. Um, so you'd have to say likely to, to beat that, but they have been struggling lately. This would be the 25th straight year of being over 500. Mm-hmm. They, they did record. lose uh, their third or fourth starter yesterday. Michael Pineda is having uh, Tommy John surgery. Hmm. So that maybe adds to the conversation a little bit. Yeah, I always thought Quintana would, would be a good fit for them. They just seem pretty unwilling to, to trade their top minor league players but they're all position players right yeah they don't have any um pitchers no they have a they have one guy in the top 100 hmm. um all right i guess the last one 8.1 strikeouts per game per team and uh that looks to be shattered this year so definitely the over and we'll talk about that with rob a little bit later a trout and harper update a quick one here uh, Harper hit two home runs on Friday, and in July he's now hitting 15 for 34 with four home runs, OBP of 537. And Mike Trout is officially back. He's back, yep. He was injured, uh, did not play in any baseball games in the major leagues for 46 days. In his return on Friday night, he went one for five. In his first at-bat, though, he singled and then stole second, sliding headfirst hmm. in the second. No fear. Kind of a statement. 
Maybe yeah, not. and the Angels kind of hung around without him. Yeah, I think they're a few games under right now. I mean, they're still like 20 back of the Astros, but they didn't completely fall apart. You got a chance at the wild card. All right, that's all I got. Um, you got anything else? Yeah, one last note. Uh, Pablo Sandoval was sent down by the uh, Red Sox, which means they'll try to trade him. He's not agreeing to be designated, so he'll either be traded to another team if someone claims him, or he'll just be a free agent. Uh, if no one takes him in a trade, the Red Sox will have paid him $95 million for 161 games. Wow. Um, and that's that wasn't Thea, right? That was Charrington? Right, yep. So a terrible contract. I think some people were skeptical of that at the time, but I don't think anyone predicted that this would happen. Yeah, he's kind of like a, a sabermetric money ball type of player. Right. Okay, well, let's do baseball on TV quickly here. This is the one-year anniversary of this segment to celebrate the one year. We're now moving into baseball on the big screen. We are now adding movies that have baseball scenes in them because we've kind of maxed out TV episodes, at least the ones on Hulu and uh, Netflix. Mm -hmm. So we're now shifting into movies with baseball scenes, not baseball movies, you know, just traditional movies, non-sports that have a baseball scene. If you have suggestions of your favorites, tweet at us, a foot in the box, or email us at a foot in the box at gmail.com. Yes. But yeah, we're, we're talking heavyweights this week. Came out in 1995. It's on Netflix right now if uh, people want to go watch it. It only has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 29%, which is just a travesty. Mm-hmm. I think Rotten Tomatoes misses on movies that came out before it was a thing, before Rotten Tomatoes was a thing. What do you think? Uh, you are much more into the Rotten Tomatoes site than I am. I will occasionally look at Rotten Tomatoes, but I trust your judgment. All right. Uh, heavyweights. Uh, baseball scene in this movie is Camp Hope, where all the fat kids go, versus Camp MVP, where all the athletes go to uh, do summer camp. And uh, it's always a slaughter, but in heavyweights... Uh, that particular year. Camp MVP puts the beat down on. It was 61 to nothing in the top of the sixth, according to the scoreboard. We don't get a final score. Uh, I will say that after one inning, it was 7 to nothing, which is better than John Lester. <laughs> That's true. The uh, the errors at third base really killed Camp Hope. Gerald Gardner, I believe, had six errors. Well, if it doesn't touch him, it's not an error, right? Uh, true. True. Favorite moment from the baseball scene? Uh, well, what's um Keenan's character's name? Roy. When Roy uh, slugs the catcher in the stomach, which the stomach, or yeah, uh, is the catcher the arrogant catcher for Camp MVP the same arrogant kid that's in Sandlot? The pitcher? I'm not sure. They look very similar. Do you have a favorite moment? My favorite moment is before the game starts when the coach for Camp Hope is instructing the mm-hmm. English, the British boy, how to play. And he says, uh, so it's like cricket. And he said, it's not like cricket. It is cricket with a different name. <laughs> uh, update on Gerald Garner. He's now a very fit-looking uh, male model type person. Ben, ben Stiller's been redeemed. Tony Perkins, I should say. <laughs> Tony Perkis. Tony Perkis, sorry. No N. Uh, great movie. Well, that's Baseball on TV. We'll end with a clip 
from that baseball scene. I'm not so good at sports. Oh yeah, and I'm Deion Sanders. We're dead, guys. All right, I want to see some muscle out there. Hey, Pat, how you doing? So you got a promotion? No. Yeah. Listen, Chris. Uh, over the years, you guys have whooped us pretty good. How about uh, taking it easy on my guys this year? You know what I mean. No, no, I don't know what you mean. MVP campers are trained to compete at the highest level at all times. Hey, we wouldn't want to confuse them. <laughs> Looking good, Pat. All right, let's work it around. Come on, man. I like to hit the field and let the fates decide. There we go. Good plan. All right, there you go. I have a tiger. Eat your Wheaties today, Philip. The God, you ate your Wheaties. All right, Sims, way to hustle. Like a rocket. There you go. Pat Finley, please report to the men's toilets immediately. Bring a mop and a plunger. Now. All right, for Out of the Box this week, we are going to discuss the Crosstown Jose Quintana trade. For my end, I'm going to discuss uh, some factoids from Jeff Passon's piece at Yahoo Sports. We'll link to it in the, the podcast episode page. But he focused on both the Cubs and the Sox. For the Cubs, uh, he really zeroed in on the contract being the most um, appealing thing to the Cubs. And I feel like most fans maybe surface-level fans, uh, don't quite understand how important that contract is. The same thing happened when the White Sox got a great return for Adam Eaton. You know, they, they just hear the name, and they hear what the Cubs gave up, or the Nationals gave up, and it doesn't jive. But you have to factor in the contract. And even though there isn't a hard salary cap in baseball, it's clear that the Cubs, like, that money is important to the Cubs. Just, I guess, getting into some and, of the- I mean, there's a soft cap. Yeah, like a luxury yeah. tax, and it seems like teams have treated that with, you know, they don't want to go into it. Yeah, the uh, some of the facts around Katana's contract: he's owed three point two million dollars the rest of this year, eight point eight five next year, and ten point five the season after that, and then there's two club options for the years after that, which will definitely get picked up. Right, um, Passon says that the Diamondbacks will pay Zach Greinke more for a single season than the Cubs will pay for three and a half years of Katana which really puts things into perspective. You know, Granke is is probably a cut ahead of Quintana. You know, I don't think Quintana's in the, the Kershaw, Granke, Lester tier, but I do. That's an interesting tier. Well, I'm just trying to think of National League starters. Scherzer. Scherzer, yeah. But uh, he's definitely in the, the kind of the second class. Well, you'd rather much rather have him for the next three and a half years than Granke. If they were making the same amount of money? Oh, yeah. Age factor. I mean, Granky's like thirty-four. I'd rather have Granky, but really, yeah. What Kitana's twenty-eight, twenty-seven? Mm, uh, I'm not sure. We'll look that up. Um, but yeah, it's just clear that money matters to the Cubs. Passon talks about the Cubs juggling four balls simultaneously. One is fighting the rising cost of soon-to-be arbitration-eligible players. All their young players will eventually need to be paid. Kitana's twenty-eight. Um. You know, even before the Cubs, even before their free agents, arbitration comes in and they'll be paying a boatload of money to their core. And so, Bryce Harper. <laughs> yes, and Bryce Harper. That's why Jimenez was expendable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other ball, or the second ball is trying to stay flexible to pounce in free agency, a la Bryce Harper or another starter. You know what the Cubs are going to do. What's that? 
They're going to sign Harper and Shohei Otani, and they're going to make them two-way players. Both. Mm -hmm. Harper throws, you know, mid-90s, use him uh, that way, and then Otani, they're going to do the same thing. Yeah. I... Two birds, one stone. I'd probably rather have the Cubs sign Otani than Harper. Four birds, two stones. The third ball the Cubs are juggling is remaining under the luxury tax, which you just said, Pete, it seems to matter to teams. And then fourth is just fielding a, a winning team. But, you know, Passon talks about the need for a veteran clubhouse presence. That might might sound cliche. Kitana's 28. Yeah, but he has five, six years of major league experience. Which Do you know is, he's the first Colombian-born pitcher for the Cubs? I did not know that. That was the focus on the Cubs. Uh, the White Sox, he talked about how deep the farm system is. And this this is the bit that um, stuck out to me the most. So the White Sox have a pitcher named Dane Dunning, who was the third piece they got back from the Nationals last year. He was a first-round pick of the Nationals. He's not a top 100 prospect yet, but will be and has been doing really well in low A. Right now he is the White Sox 12th best mm. prospect. Passon says that for five to seven other organizations, Dunning would be their best prospect. Mm. So I feel like the, the White Sox have gotten to where the Cubs were three or four years ago, maybe even surpassed where the no, Cubs were. No, absolutely not. Perhaps. I've got some hot takes on the White Sox rebuild. So they have three elite hitting prospects with Jimenez, Mancada, and Robert. Has Robert played any games yet? No, not yet. Uh, and Let's they, wait till he plays then they again. have two um, top 100 starting pitching prospects in Kopech and Dylan Cease. Uh, and that's not to mention five or six other guys like Carson Fulmer, Zach Birdie, um, who are going to be elite relievers. So I'm really, really excited about the White Sox direction. I thought it was a fair trade. Mm-hmm. Both teams got what they needed. I think Jimenez is going to be a really, really good player for a long time, just like Quintana has been a good player for a long time. So uh, I don't think either fan base should feel slighted or upset about the trade. Would you like to hear my White Sox rebuild hot take? Uh, I want to say not really, but I feel like I I have to because this is the podcast. So in my view, the White Sox have two good position player prospects, Mankata and Jimenez. And good, uh, you, you, good, good, or potentially great, but two top ten, top yes. five. Well, according to the rankings, I go by the eye test. Okay, uh, but two guys that are risky. Hmm. Uh, they're not the Chris Bryant type hitters, where like you're you're expecting. You, they have high ceilings, so they could be great. Like Mankata could be Robinson Cano, uh, or he could be Dan Ugla. Anyway, two two pro- hitting prospects that are very good. Very, very good. And then you have a bunch of pitchers that will be relievers. I don't see any of those guys, you know, maybe this Dunning character will be a good starter. But the, the rest of the guys throw really hard. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they'll be starters. Hmm. And then Robert is an unknown. And the, the first round pick they had this year is an unknown. Berger, Jake Berger. Mm-hmm. So that's my take. They need to keep adding safer type prospects like the Cubs did hmm. in, in drafting the first round. And I, I'm skeptical that their pitching, like their bullpen will be great in five years, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering how good their starting pitching will be. Like w- which, of their, which of their pitching prospects is going to be a dominant starting pitcher? 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think Gilito was a pretty safe bet as a starter. He's, he doesn't throw he's, high he's 90s. The ERA is over five this year. He's pitched a lot better in the last couple months. Um, Dunning will be a starter. So Gilito was number one overall pitching prospect last year, right? Uh, he's the best starting pitching prospect. Wasn't number one overall. Yeah, and he's, is he out of the top 100 now? Um, No, he dropped a considerable amount. Okay. I get what it you're just saying. It just seems like a lot of them are, have have potential, like they could be Noah Syndergaard, but they're probably going to be just really good relievers. Yeah, it's not. I, I, I feel like um, a false equivalency. Is that the right term? Like you can't say because a guy throws super hard in the minors, he can't be a starting pitcher. You know, sure. Steven Strasburg, Syndergaard, even a guy like DeGrom, all these guys throw super hard, um, but they've become good starters. Well, like Carson Fulmer. He's going to be a reliever. Yeah, but that's more... He throws hard, but he's erratic. Like, And I feel like most of their guys are erratic. Maybe, but like Kopech and Cease, I think, could be starters. Hmm. At, at least that's what the White Sox say publicly. That Yeah, my take is just, you know, they're going to shift over to the bullpen. Well, maybe we'll start bullpenning games and just have... Well, I think they could have a crazy good bullpen. Right. Anyway, I, what I wanted to talk about... Uh, was the Cubs and White Sox trading history. Because that was the most fascinating thing to me, that the Cubs and White Sox came together, shocked everyone. No one was talking about the trade, except for uh, Wet Butt and <laughs> Katy Perry's Booty Hole on Reddit. Yeah, if you missed it, those were the two uh, usernames of the people who broke the story. Yeah, Katy Perry's Booty Hole writes on White Sox Reddit, which, Paul, I'm pretty sure you're, you're, you're active on that. I am not, no. <laughs> so... Uh, Katy Perry's booty hole says, Hey guys, take this with a grain of salt, but I heard from a friend whose brother's friend works for the Cubs that Quintana is going to the Cubs in exchange for four players. Has anyone heard anything similar? And this was the night before the trade. And then Wet Butt responds, Four prospects, no pros. Players were meeting with doctors and will be official tonight or tomorrow. Hmm. Anyway, this is the first Cubs White Sox trade in over 10 years. Yep. Uh, Really cool that the two teams came together to do this. Rick Hahn called the idea that they wouldn't trade, uh, frankly, laughable. But I feel like earlier on in the season, he he made comments that it wasn't likely. Right, um, and it did. It does sound like uh, we were asking for a lot in return for Chris Sale. I think Chris Chris Bryant was like the yeah. keystone of. Which I'm not. I don't think it's that ridiculous. Like, you know, clearly the Cubs aren't going to do that. But Sale for Bryant is like a fair trade in my mind. Yeah, that would have been, yeah, and just a crazy trade. Yeah. M- MVP after a second First season. Yeah. All right. So, uh, just four Cubs White Sox trades I wanted to highlight. This is by far the longest gap that the White Sox and Cubs hadn't traded. 2006 was Neil Kotz for Ardsma. Mm-hmm. And both those players are still pitching. Neil Kotz is in AAA with the Nationals this year. And then Arzma uh, is an indie ball, the Long Island Ducks, pitching with Eric Gagne. He's thrown 16 innings this year. Yeah, so that was a big, uh, the big 2006 trade, Neil Katz for David Arzma. And you have Garland. Was that the? Yep, 1998 was the next one. Uh, Matt Karchner for John Garland, which the White Sox won. Yes. Who would you say won the 2006 one? Um. So Katz went to the Cubs. Yeah, I'd say the Cubs. But then the Cubs got Arzma back, right? Yeah, Artsman wasn't that good. Cubs won that one. Uh, and Karchner for Garland, the White Sox obviously won. The next one, 1992, 
Sammy Sosa for George Bell. I think the Cubs won that one. I would say so. <laughs> Shout out to Sammy Sosa. We haven't talked about it, but another photo has been released. Uh, he's pinker than ever with a pink hat yes. to match. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he does not look like Sammy Sosa. Doesn't look like a human being. He's like a ghost. <laughs> He looks like a vampire. Yes. Weird looking guy. <laughs> a black vampire. 1973, uh, there's other trades in between, but the biggest one. Ron left, Santo? Left on this list. Ron Santo for? Um, Steve Stone. Steve Stone and mm. Nick Swisher's father. Wow. Steve Swisher. And I, th- I believe Santo went on record as like saying he despised that trade. Like, he hated playing for the White Sox. Didn't last very long, if I recall correctly. Yeah, he hated the White Sox. Uh, well, that was Cubs-White Sox trading history. Uh, I agree that Eloy will be a great player. He was fifth overall in Baseball America's top 100 list. I've heard comps of Jermaine Dye, Jorge Soler, Ooh. and there was some Hall of Famer he was referenced to. Maybe Frank Thomas? See, but that's what I'm talking about. Like the the range is yeah. like Jorge Soler to, I guess Jermaine Dye. Mm-hmm. Uh, he turns 21 in November, and I think he could be in the majors by next year, pretty easily. He's in high right now, and uh, he's doing really well. Good on base, hitting for power. I think uh, him and Makata could be up, mm-hmm. you know, by next year. That's all I got. You got anything else on the the trade? Uh, just that I think my prediction, 2020, the Cubs will, their core will be phasing out. White Sox core will be reaching their prime. I'm predicting a Crosstown World Series. Well, that's a good question. Wouldn't uh, that be cool? That would be awesome. What year will the White Sox have a better regular season record than the Cubs? I will say 2021. Okay. Who's going to win the 2020 World Series? The White Sox will. If our podcast ends before then... We got a reboot for yeah, the World let's Series. Do it. Okay, well that does it for out of the box. Next up, TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that, and the VORPs. When they put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. A quick TWTW this week. I'm using Mike Petriello's work from MLB.com. He uh, wrote a piece about five stars that are poised to break out in the second half using StatCast data. These are five guys that had, um, or f- sorry, four guys, four guys that had uh, rough starts to the year, but he thinks will uh, bounce back again based on StatCast data. So, can I guess? Sure. Uh, ben Zerbis, Jason Hayward. Javi Baez and Addison Russell. No, you did miss a Cub. Kyle Schwarber, uh, Manny Machado, Matt Carpenter, and Miguel Cabrera. So I'll just bounce through them real quick. Machado, we talked about last week, You know, may have been the most disappointing player of the first half. He is currently slashing 230, 296, and 445. Um, actually, very similar numbers to when he was a 19-year-old rookie. So he, he's really regressed. You know, he was one of the best players in baseball in 15 and 16. Um, but Petriello looks into the data, and actually no one in baseball has hit hit more balls at an exit velocity of 95 miles per hour or greater this year. 128 times he's hit a ball over 98 miles per hour. Um, that's their hard hit ball cutoff. So he's hit 
the most balls hard according to to Statcast, according to uh, their metric. And the numbers are starting to bear out in July. First nine games of July, he's hit 333, 350, and 615. So he seems like a good bet to bounce back. Um, still hitting the ball hard, just maybe had some bad luck in the first half. Matt Carpenter, second guy. Um, he hasn't been terrible. His on-base percentage has been uh, good, what you would expect from, from Carpenter in the 360, 370 range. But his slugging percentage has really dipped. Petriel looks into the data, and of the 346 players with 100 plate appearances this year, Carpenter's uh, expected uh, weighted on-base average ranks 12th. And again, that expected weighted on-base uh, average is a metric we talked about earlier in the year, but that's using um, exit velocity to determine you know what we would expect that player to perform at. He's ahead of guys like Corey Seager, Bryce Harper, and George Springer. So he seems likely to bounce back. Kyle Schwarber, as I mentioned, um, the lowest BABIP of any qualified player. He's similar to Carpenter in that his expected weighted on base average is much better than um, you would expect for a player who's batting uh, under 200. Uh, his his expected weighted on base average is actually more similar to, to guys like um, Andrew Benintendi and Mike Moustakis. Look for him to have a good second half. Last guy on the list, Miguel Cabrera. Um, Right now he's on pace to have his worst season since he was a 20-year-old, but uh, he's 8th in expected weighted on-base average. So Carpenter was 12th, Cabrera's even better, and no one in baseball has hit more balls with an expected average of 500 or better than Miguel Cabrera. So look for, for him to bounce back as well. So those four guys again, Machado, Carpenter, Schwarber, Cabrera. All right, that was TWTW. Next up, sounds of the game. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good evening to you. You know, I said that for about 65 years, but I last said it in October when I retired. And I hope you don't mind, but I wanted to hear it one more time. I really would like to take Brian home with me. He is such a wonderful human being, flew from New York just to get here for this award, and now is flying back to New York. I don't have a relative in the world who would make that kind of a trip. (laughs) October the 2nd, 1936, a redhead, eight and a half years old, walking by a window, saw the score of game two of the 1936 World Series. It involved the Giants and the Yankees. That little kid fell in love that day with baseball. The last game that he did before retiring was October the 2nd, 2016, exactly 80 years from whence the love affair began. And in 65 years, he was honored and thrilled and humbled to be able to fulfill a boyhood dream of broadcasting Major League Baseball. You know, God gave us memories so we can have roses in December. And in the December of my years, I have collected so many roses and cherished each and every one of them. And you give me a rose tonight to join my collection for all those years. I am humbled. I am honored, and I know another thing. 
My work was never, ever a burden. That was Vin Scully accepting the Icon Award hmm. at the ESPYs this past week. Appropriate. Uh, yeah, Brian Cranston introduced him, and uh, he gave that speech. It was good to, to see him and hear from him again. This week on Times of the Game, uh, I'm in a Bob Costas sort of mood. I watched the Yankees and Red Sox play on Friday night. And it was on MLB Network, so Bob Costas called the game. And uh, for, for me, his voice is just synonymous with like, late 90s uh, baseball and uh, NBA. Mm-hmm. And um, The Olympics, too. Yeah. But I, when I hear his voice, I think like big moments in baseball and, and basketball. Uh, and so we're going to play the 1995 World Series. I think probably his biggest moment or his, his most common or most famous phrase, the team of the 90s has their championship in baseball at least that's his most you know famous phrase uh so 1995 world series game six indians braves the indians were the heavy favorites going into the world series they were the best team in baseball all year Uh, just crushed teams offensively Uh, but in game six uh tom glavin threw eight innings only gave up one hit and david justice hit a solo home run in the sixth and that was the only run scored uh, interesting note on this game, Jimmy Carter, former governor of Georgia, and, of course, former president throughout the first pitch. Hmm. Yeah, here uh, here is Bob Costas calling the last out in the 1995 World Series. The most feared offense in baseball all year long. Held to one hit through eight and two-thirds by Glavin and Wollers. Held to a team batting average under 200 now in this World Series. Baerga is 0 for 3. Left center field. Grissom on the run. The team of the 90s has its world championship. Before we get to our interview with Rob Maines on second half stat trends, we are going to discuss the best second half offense and best second half pitching staff of all time. Arguably of Mm -hmm. all time. So the 1999 Oakland Athletics offense and the 2012 Tampa Bay Rays pitching staff are the two things we're going to focus on. Uh, let's start with the Athletics offense. Uh, so 1999, that was a couple years after Billy Bean had taken over the team from Sandy Alderson as general manager. And so they had built a pretty good team full of money ball type guys, you know, good power Good on base, uh, maybe overlooked. Maybe. Their highest paid player was Kenny Rogers. <laughs> um, he was making $5 million. Yeah, and just a lot of hitters that are kind of white and big and probably on steroids. For context, uh, Danny Valencia, uh, nomad, third baseman now for the Mariners, makes $5.6 million. Wow. All right, so the 99 Athletics had a really fun offense. Fun in the sense that it just... 
good names to look back at. So the 1999 A's uh, hit the most home runs in the second half of all time. Or I guess tied with the 1963 Twins with Harmon Killebrew, but um, the A's did it in three fewer games, so I think they're the winners. They hit 127 home runs in 75 games. So 127 homers in 75 games. They had a dude hit 35 homers who I've never heard of before. Uh, John Jaha? That's correct. <laughs> so of the of the top 20 teams in terms of home runs in the second half, 14 played from 1996 through 2004. And then if you look at the top 50 list, 46 of the 50 have come after the strike. Wow. So definitely in a different era of baseball right now. And the 2004 Cubs and White Sox are both in the top, uh, I think, 10 or 15 of this list. That was supposed to be the small ball uh, Aussie era. Not so much. Mm-hmm. In 2004 Cubs, it was the year after you know they went to the NLCS. Yeah. Didn't make the playoffs that year. So the, the 99 Athletics had a really fun lineup. And other metrics, the 99 A's rank fourth in on-base percentage in the second half and 14th in slicking percentage for a second-half team. Let's take a look at their lineup and how many home runs they hit in the second half. Um, so catcher, A.J. Hinch, interesting. Now he's the uh, Astros manager. Yeah, He only had four second-half homers. Uh, first base, Jason Giambi. He had 18 home runs, a young Jason Giambi. Uh, second base, Randy Valerde. Did he have a role in Moneyball? I feel like I heard I him. I don't recall. They okay. traded for him before the season. Okay. He had eight home runs in the second half. Shortstop, a young Miguel Tejada. Had 13 homers. Third base, uh, Eric Chavez had six. And then uh, the corner outfielders are fun. Ben Grieve had 17 in left field. And Matt Stairs had 21 in right field. Yeah, he he had 38 homers that season and a war of less than two. (laughs) 1.7 war. For Stairs? Yes. Nice. Uh, I was listening to the Cubs radio broadcast the other day, and uh, someone had wrote in and said, their favorite players were Ron Coomer and Matt Stairs. Wow. Ron Coomer was not thrilled <laughs> to hear that. Their center fielder was some guy named Ryan Christensen. Only had two home runs. And then their DH, John Jaha, had 16 homers in the second half. He was an interesting character. He won uh, Comeback Player of the Year that year. Was an all-star for the first and only time of his career. He was in his mid-30s. Uh, Steroids, right? He had gotten a minor league contract before the season. <laughs> was with the Brewers before that. But like I said, I had never heard of him. So all of this comes from Wikipedia and Baseball Reference last night. So. Don't you think they should have just renamed the Comeback Player of the Year award like guy that took steroids right. in the 90s and Remember Gal came back from cancer, I believe, and hit like 50 homers. Okay, uh, let's switch over to the 2012 Rays pitching staff. They went 45-31 and 31 in the second half. Pretty good. Similar to the A's who went 44 and 31, uh, but the the 2012 Rays pitching staff has the most strikeouts of any team in the second half. They had 698 strikeouts and 693 innings pitched. Uh, other teams in the top five: the 2002 Cubs. That would have been Pryor and Wood. Um, 2015 Cubs are third. Uh, 2012 Brewers and the 2012 Phillies round out the top five. There must have been something going on in 2012. Mm-hmm. Three of the top five. Uh, the Cubs have four of the top ten. 2004 and 2016 are also in the top ten. The 2012 Rays had a 2.6 ERA, 1.03 whip in the second half. 
and had a very uh, good pitching staff. A lot of uh, fun names on this list. Yeah, their bullpen to me was the most fascinating. Wade Davis was their fourth best reliever. He had for the year he had eighty seven strikeouts in seventy innings. Eleven point one strikeouts per nine. But then they also had Fernando Rodney, who was their closer at age thirty five. He had nine point two strikeouts per nine. Joel Peralta, age thirty six, had uh, eleven point three strikeouts per nine, and then Jake McGee who, again, I never really heard of, and he had 11.9 strikeouts per nine. Never heard of Jake McGee? Mm-mm. He's, he's still good. But those, for the Rockies. Really, those four guys, Rodney, Peralta, McGee, and Davis, uh, made a combined $5 million. Mm. So just an awesome bullpen for the cheap. Well, then Chris Archer came up late in the year. Yep. He, and Alex Cobb. He struck out 36 in 29 innings, and then, yeah, Alex Cobb. Well, he, he was there the whole year. Anyway, the rest of their starting pitchers, James Shields, back when he was good, uh, he had about a strikeout per innings pitched. Uh, David Price uh, struck out 205 batters in 211 innings. Matt Moore uh, is probably his best year, 175 strikeouts. Jeremy Hellickson, their weakest strikeout pitcher, 124 strikeouts in 177 innings. Kyle Farnsworth was also in the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have as many appearances, but existed. Yeah, so fun, fun pitching staff for the 2012 uh, Rays. Did they go to the playoffs? They did not. Third place in the East, 90 and 72. Mm. Uh, before the season, Joe Madden was given a three-year extension, or during the season, that was supposed to run him through 2015. Well, so that's the contract that he signed that gave him the weird outcome. But uh, he wasn't a man of his word and left the Rays. No, it was part of the contract. Before the contract was over. If Friedman left, he could leave as well. Anything to add about these teams, Paul? Nope. Good uh, good selections, I thought. Interesting to dig into them. Had you heard of John Jaha before the... I had a similar moment like a year ago where someone referenced him and then I hadn't heard of him, but I went and looked and yeah. saw his numbers. Okay. Well, that does it for Deep Dive. Next up on the podcast, we are discussing second half trends with our favorite reoccurring guest, Rob Maines. Our guest this week on the podcast is Rob Maines of Baseball Prospectus and Banished to the Pen. Rob, welcome to our podcast. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I should have said welcome back. Uh, other than our closest family and friends, uh, you know, our brothers, a couple listeners that we're uh, close friends with, you are our first repeat guest. So uh, congratulations. Oh, I'm honored. That's cool. <laughs> uh, great. Well, uh, we wanted to have you on to discuss uh, an article that you wrote at Baseball Prospectus this past week on uh, the difference between first and second halves. Uh, but before we do, I wanted to get uh, an update since we last talked. It was about a year ago at this time. Have you had any cool baseball moments or uh, your like a, a favorite piece that you wrote in the past year? Well, in terms of like live baseball moments, the disadvantage I have is that I live kind of in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York, so I don't get a chance to see very many games. Obviously, we had a pretty memorable end to this, you know, to the postseason last year. Of the pieces I wrote, the one that I'm kind of most proud of is one that really was, well, a couple. One was I wrote a piece based on a article in the Joe Sheehan newsletter, which I recommend to all your listeners. It's a great newsletter covering baseball in which he 
kind of ruminated about how different baseball was in the 1970s. And I did an entire uh, humongous article about the 1971 season, just pointing out how different things were. You know, there are a lot of complete games. There weren't anywhere near as many strikeouts as there are now, more stolen bases. That was kind of fun. And then on the analytical side, I wrote a piece earlier this year on something that really has been kind of a hobby horse of mine, and that is a trend in baseball that I find both disconcerting and completely going under the radar, and that is batters getting hit by pitches hmm. at about as great a pace as they ever have in the history of baseball. Um, as of a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think this has changed, the hit-by-pitch rate in terms of uh, percentage of hit batters per plate appearance is at the ninth highest rate ever. And um, I looked into why that's happening. I think that the main reason is higher strikeout rates means that more batters are facing pitchers in favorable counts for pitchers. And when a pitcher has a batter, you know, one and two, all in one, whatever, they're more likely to try to get the guy to chase by throwing a pitch to the periphery of the zone. And if that periphery of the zone is inside, you miss by a few inches, you hit a batter which, you know, explains why there's more hit batters. And then the really disconcerting part, though, is you add that to the velocity that we're seeing in pitches today. I'm just really concerned about hmm. somebody's going to get really seriously injured out there. And, um, you know, other than that, every baseball season gives you all these kind of things that you weren't anticipating that are worth looking into. And I think this one's been as fun as any. Uh, last year at this time, uh, one of the storylines we were talking about was uh, Andrew McCutcheon, and I know you're a Pirates fan, and just based, you know, looking back over your work over the last year, you've sort of ridden that roller coaster like the rest of us. Uh, what's kind of your current uh, take on McCutcheon, and, you know, if you were the, the powers that be with the Pirates, would you think about dealing him now? Do you think he's sort of at the peak of his uh, uh, his performance, or would you hold on to him until uh, until he's a free agent? Yeah, you know, I was talking to, uh, we had a baseball prospectus event um, at uh, City Field recently. I was talking to one of our guys who writes for our fantasy site, and I said that the worst possible fantasy guy to be, and I'm sure there are people out here, is the guy who would own McCutcheon in a keeper league, stuck with him all this year, figured he'd bounce back, or stuck with him all last year, figured he'd bounce back this year, and then threw in the towel at the end of May and traded him for very little. Because, you know, he's been red hot ever since uh, the start of June. Mm -hmm. um, to be honest with you, though, if I look at this rationally, McCutcheon's going to be a free agent after next season. And especially if he keeps hitting like this, there's it's not realistic to expect the Pirates to be able to keep him. This year, um, we've got a weird season in the National League in that the divisions are, well, the, the central specifically, is much more competitive than the wild cards are. The wild cards, you know, unless Colorado goes in a serious tailspin, looks like they're done. So I don't really see a path for the Pirates to the postseason this year. And if that's the case, and, you know, Austin Meadows, although he's had a horrible start to the year, in uh, AAA looks like he's the heir apparent center. With the right offer, i trade him at the deadline. All right, well, uh, let's get into your piece that you wrote. Um, we'll link to it in the, the podcast episode page for listeners. Go check that out. Uh, you took a look at every season since 1998 uh, when MLB expanded to 30 teams, uh, and you broke down the first and second half uh, and looked for metrics that were 
you know, noticeably different between each, each uh, f the first and second half. So you have five observations. I thought we could touch on each one uh, briefly here. So the first one, uh, kind of the biggest no-brainer, there are more relievers per game in the second half than the first half, uh, and you saw that in 18 of the 19 seasons. Um, any more uh, input from you or uh, wisdom on why that is? Yeah, the the thing that, that we, we talk about the first half versus the second half, and I'm not talking, you know, first 81 games versus the last 81. We're talking about the dividing line being the all-star break. Mm -hmm. You get a big influence in the second half from the sub September roster expansion. And since there are benches that are full of relief pitchers, it's not a surprise that um, managers go to the bullpen all the time in September, and you can get some really painfully slow games, and those relievers pitch fewer innings. And that's probably the biggest driver for that particular trend, that you get more relievers in games and those relievers pitch fewer innings. We're likely to set um, a record, I think, for relievers per game. Um, the record last year was 3.15 per team. Um, and we could, though... I don't know if we're going to. We could touch 2015's record for the fewest innings pitched for relie per reliever. But there's enough guys, you know, there's enough Andrew Millers out there. And even guys like Patances uh, and Kimbrell have pitched some appearances of more than anything. I don't know if we're going to break that record, but we'll come close. So, you know, expect to see a parade of relievers in the upcoming months. Yep. Uh Next one's very related to this one. Uh, fewer innings by starters in 14 of the 19 seasons. Uh, the second half saw fewer innings uh, per start um, out of starters. And uh, we're nearing a record there as well. Uh, it's crazy uh, how few innings per start the average is for um, starting pitchers now. Yeah, I think a new record is pretty much a slam dunk. Last year, starters averaged 5.65 innings per start, which is the first time in baseball history that the average starter didn't pitch at least five and two-thirds innings. We're below that now. And again, once we get uh, you know the 15-man bullpens that we might see in September, start innings per start are likely to go down for a couple of reasons. One, you've got um, you know teams out of contention want to see more pitchers pitch, see what they might have. And then the teams that are in contention, you want to, you know, it's, it's a long season. You want to give some of your starters a rest. So I think we're going to see that record. Currently, um, we're about 5.6 innings per start. We're going to go lower for the rest of the year. Moving over to offense, uh, you can expect more home runs uh, in the second half. Uh, 13 of the 19 seasons saw the home run rate go up. And that's a big deal because right now we're, we're close to 8% higher than the previous record in 2000 of home runs per game. And so uh, that the difference between this year and, and the current record will only grow in the second half if, if history holds. Yeah, I think there are, in, in, in this article, I think there are three absolute slam-dunk new records. One is the fewest innings ever per starters, and the second one is the home runs. Unless, you know, as you guys know, the home run spike started uh, in the, after the All Star break in 2015. Maybe they'll maybe they'll switch the balls back. <laughs> but but you know, absent that, yeah, it's it's normal in the second half of the season. There's a lot of reasons for it. You know, the weather, the timing, the types of pitchers that are coming in. You know, not all those relievers coming up from AAA are any good. Um, it's normal to expect uh, 
teams to hit more or players to hit more home runs after the All-Star break. And given that we're already at a record pace, that record uh, is probably going to get lengthened. Uh, the fourth one, more strikeouts. In 12 of the 19 seasons, there was an increase in strikeouts in the second half. And interestingly, the opposite, only, uh, or I guess, yeah, only eight of the 19 saw an increase in walks. So a majority of the season saw a decrease in walks in the second half, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, th that is interesting. And I did a piece in April about how, you know, what trends we see in April that tend not to uh, be indicative of how the season is going to go. And one of them is pitchers tend to walk more players in April than they do batters in April than they do in the rest of the year. And I think that, again, is, you know, sort of like just as batters might not have as many home runs because their timing isn't down. Pitchers don't have all their mechanics going right at the beginning of the year, and that could explain why there are more walks at the beginning of the year. So, yeah, one of the things that um, has been talked about this year a lot, uh, Tom Verducci wrote a nice piece in Sports Illustrated about this, is the rise of uh, this uh, baseball prospectus term, the three true outcomes, um, home runs, walks, and strikeouts. Um, are about a third of all plate appearances this year, all-time high. And, you know, there's not a lot of action with home runs, walks, and strikeouts. I think it's a, it's virtually guaranteed we set a new record for home runs. Um, we've been setting new records for strikeouts every year anyway, but at least we're probably not going to see a new record for walks because uh, walks normally do go down in the second half of the year, and we're not you know, we're, we're a lot closer to a low uh, point for walks than we are high point. So at least uh, won't expect to see a bunch of players getting walks in addition to all the guys that are likely to strike out and hit home runs now if the All-Star breaks past. Yep. Uh, more uh, hit batters and intentional walks is your last observation, and you've talked about that a little bit already. Um, but there are some interesting trends to watch for 2017, like you talked about with the hit batters. Yeah, you know, th this actually surprised me because when I did this study, I was expecting to find a lot of things that would be different in the second half of the year than the first half of the year for a couple reasons. One is, as you guys know, because um, you've talked to Alan Nathan, as the weather gets warmer, um, the ball travels better. So I expected to see, you know, probably an offensive uh if not a spike, then a pretty consistent increase in the second half of the year. And other, you know, other than home runs, I really didn't see it. It was tough to find things that were fairly consistently higher in the second half of the year than the first half of the year. And you mentioned the pitcher metrics, home runs, and strikeouts. And I found these two kind of oddball things, that we tend to get more hit batters and more intentional walks in the second half of the year than the first half of the year. Why that is, you know, I think we can guess that maybe we get more hit batters because some of these guys coming up from the minors may not have the type of control, um, at least once they're ahead in the count, that uh, major league pitchers have. Why more intentional walks? That one I really can't – I don't have a good theory for is, you know, as the – Sabermetric revolution has kind of pointed out that intentional walks don't make a lot of sense. There have been a declining number of intentional walks anyway. But yeah, over the last, uh, since 1998, and as you said, I picked that as my starting point because that's when we had 30 teams, we had interleague play and everything. Um, in most seasons, there have been more hit batters and more intentional walks in the second half of the year than the first half. Now, whether that you know equates to more excitement, I think is a pretty open question and i'm just hoping that uh the increase in hit batters doesn't 
result in anything like the John Carlos Stanton uh, hit by pitch a few years ago that was really one of the scarier moments in baseball. Rob, I'm curious, uh, you know, as you sort of made these five observations, was there a specific team or a type of team that you think might benefit from any of these? You know, maybe a team with a, a deeper bullpen or a team that could use a power surge like the Cubs? Or did any teams come to mind as you were putting together those observations? That, that's a great question. When I was looking at um, the relief pitcher usage, the team that I immediately thought of, and of course they're not relevant this year, is the Giants. Because Bruce Bochy, probably better than any other manager, I mean, Giants games got to be painful to watch in September, but he was really good at playing matchups with his relievers, and that might be, you know, three guys to get three different outs in an inning. And so the types of teams that I think are likely to benefit from this, um, you know, because everybody's got a bunch of young arms in AAA that are throwing 95, 100 uh, mile an hour gas. And you bring a whole bunch of them up, you're not constrained by a 25 man limit. Um, you can give a rest to your starters. Teams that I think probably benefit the most from that would be the contenders who in fact have been leaning on their starters a lot. That wouldn't be, for instance, it wouldn't be a team like the Dodgers who have you know, kind of had Kershaw and Wood and then kind of a taxi squad of starters that they've uh, rolled out there. The Astros have actually kept the workloads of their starters pretty moderate. Um, Cleveland's been leaning on their key guys a lot. Nationals, with that horror show of a bullpen that they've got, if they can bring in some... Uh, I mean, I think we all expect them to make a trade, but also just have more arms in there, put less pressure on their starters. I think that will give them a little bit of a lift. I think for the contending teams, it's not so much that they need a deeper bullpen in order to, you know, finish their stretch run. It's really more they need a deeper bullpen in order to set up their starters to be reasonably well rested for the postseason. The team that I think of that kind of might be in contention, um, you know, kind of on the bubble that uh, might need a bit of a rest is obviously the Rockies, just because of the nature of pitching in cores. Their starters have been fantastic this year. They could wear down, and being able to have a bunch of relievers to take some of the stress off could help them if they have to defend uh, the number two wild card uh, position after Arizona. All right, that's great stuff. Uh, Rob, final question for you. Uh, certain players have the reputation for being uh, a really good first or second half player. Uh, do you think you're a first or second half writer? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Do you, which, which, do, you, do you get burnt out as the season goes on, or uh, do, you, do you find your stride? Late in the year. Well, you know what? It, the, the thing that happens as the season progresses is that there's just more stuff to write about. There are trends that are emerging that don't emerge early in the season. Like, for instance, um, I wrote, actually, it'll come out on Monday, something pointing out that if you consider the two most, if you're, if you're watching a team's offense, two most boring things that the batters can do is strike out and hit a pop-up. Right, because mm -hmm. they're both pretty much automatic outs. Nobody really has to move a whole lot on the field. You know, nothing happens. And the Padres are on pace to set a record uh, of sorts for strikeouts and pop-ups. Um, that sort of 
article that you can't write in May because nobody's on pace to do anything. That being said, I really like writing in April, kind of debunking the trends that people talk about because there's a propensity, you know, because we haven't seen baseball since the previous fall that we see two, three weeks of data and, you know, we try to make a conclusion from that. And as you guys know, you can see the same two, three weeks in July or August and nobody thinks anything of it. We make a big deal of it in April. So I think maybe a little bit more of a first half guy, just because I sort of like the nature of the things that you can write about in the first half and the second half, it's a little easier because, you know, you just look at the numbers on any given day and something jumps on. You say, Oh, that's interesting going on. But, uh, I just I like putting kind of tapping the brakes on excitement or uh, feelings of doom that people might have at the beginning of the season. Listeners, if you own Rob in your uh, writer fantasy league, you need to trade him right now. His value is the highest it's been. <laughs> yeah, me and uh, and McCutcheon. <laughs> Package, deal. Package deal. Yeah. Uh, all right, listeners, uh, check him out. Baseball Perspective, Spanish to the Pen. Uh, thanks so much, Rob, for joining us, and uh, have a great second half of the season. You guys, too, I really appreciate uh, being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks again to Rap for joining us. Always enjoy uh, discussing baseball with him. Find his work at uh, Baseball Perspectives. Closing out the podcast here. Uh, look ahead to some fun, exciting things. Uh, no podcast next week because Paul and I are on vacation in Michigan with our family. Last year, we also planned to do that, but then we had to do a Chapman sale emergency podcast. <laughs> uh, it's a good thing Kitana was traded before vacation this year, so I don't think we'll have to do that, but you never know. To make up for no podcast, we are live streaming our reactions to the Cubs-White Sox game on July 26th. That's uh, a week from Wednesday. There's a chance Jose Quintana might start. So either way, we'll talk about Quintana on the Cubs. By that point, I think we'll have one or two starts to discuss uh, how he's doing. Um, and then on that live stream, we'll also announce the 2017 Summer Flicks choices, like we did last year during the Home Run Derby live stream. In August, uh, we've got Summer Flicks and the Brothers Road Trip, so that's exciting. Uh, and then we've also got the trade deadline to discuss. Anything else to add about our upcoming schedule, Paul? The only We are heading to South Haven, Michigan on vacation. There is one Major League Baseball player from South Haven who played for the Cubs, Dave Gumpert. Uh, what years? 1982 through 1987. Interesting. Was a, a pitcher. South Haven is also where... Uh, Muhammad Ali had a residence for quite some Seriously? time. Seriously? Yes. Just found that out this week. <laughs> 2005 MVP Baseball. Paul, of course, is 7-0 and this year. I haven't won. Uh, we plan on playing at least three games in South Haven. Mm, I don't Take, know if I can commit to that. But. Taking the PS2 with us. Kate has already agreed to let Paul Th- play. Three, I could clinch, right? You could cl- clinch at least a tie. Okay. So I think we committed to playing 20 games last week. So Paul needs three to tie, four to win. And so follow us on Twitter while we're in South Haven to see uh, see if Paul can keep up his historic pace. I think that does it for the podcast. 
Make sure to follow us on Twitter at a foot in the box. Uh, make sure to email us a foot in the box at gmail.com. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud. Leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't already. It helps get the word out to more people. And check us out online at a foot in the box.com. Paul, do you have anything else? Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Well, it's real simple. You got two more quarters and that's it. Now most of you have been playing this game for 10 years. And you got two more quarters and after that most of you will never play this game again as long as you live. Now you all have known me for a while and for a long time now you've been hearing me talk about being perfect. Well I want you to understand something. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. It's not about winning. It's about you and your relationship to yourself and your family and your friends. Being perfect is about being able to look your friends in the eye and know that you didn't let them down because you told them the truth. And that truth is, is that you did everything that you could. There wasn't one more thing that you could have done. Can you live in that moment as best you can with clear eyes and love in your heart? With joy in your heart? If you can do that, gentlemen, then you're perfect. I want you to take a moment and I want you to look each other in the eyes. I want you to put each other in your hearts forever because forever is about to happen here in just a few minutes. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about Booby Miles who is your brother and he would die to be out there on that field with you tonight. And I want you to put that in your hearts. Boys, my heart is full. My heart's full. Ivory. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our day.